Holy Father, we come this day with Thanksgiving, a day of celebration, a day when we remember your promises were fulfilled. We pray now that you would speak to us by your spirits and by your word, that we, your people, might be renewed in your grace to the glory of your name and the joy of all in our midst. We pray in Christ and in him alone. Amen. For generations, countless numbers who have grown up in the church have come to a crisis of faith when the foundations of their faith are challenged. For many of those people, the argument known as the watchmaker analogy or some other similar analogy has been the, has been the, the foil that has uh, crushed them or that has chipped away at the pillar, which they have made a, a, a weight-bearing uh, weight pillar. If you're not familiar with the watchmaker analogy, although I assume most of you are, it goes back quite some time. In fact, the earliest records of it go back to 1802 when it is found in a, a, a book called Natural Theology written by a British clergyman named William Paley. And in simplest terms, the watchmaker analogy and the others that are similar to it uh, say this, is because there is a design, a watch requires that there must be a watchmaker because there is a design requires that there must be a designer. And while I believe without any doubt in my mind that there is a designer who has designed all things, the argument itself as something to build your faith upon is something that easily cracks and leads to crumbling. Years ago, I heard a variation of the watchmaker argument, and rather than a watchmaker, it was about a garden and a gardener. Apparently, two men had stumbled upon a garden out in a remote area, early in the wilderness, a place where they didn't think that anybody would be. And to the eyes of one of the men, the garden seemed to be quite well tended. It seemed to be cultivated in such a way that he said to his colleague, clearly, there is a gardener here who is tending to this garden. The other man wasn't so sure. He was not a man of faith, but he was a man who was open to things. And he said, how do you know that there's a gardener here? And they, they looked at that and they decided the only way they could tell was, let's wait and see. Let's wait until the gardener came. And so they camped out for a while. And after a couple of days, there was no evidence of the gardener. And so the man who said that he didn't see that the garden necessarily required a gardener to have cultivated it. He said, see, nothing has happened. The first man said, well, the only thing that proves is the, the gardener is invisible. And so they went and they got some technology that was able to kind of pick up sound, even sound that the human ear couldn't pick up, couldn't detect. And they set that up and they went away and they came back and they checked the recordings and there was no evidence of any, any sound. Undeterred, the man who was certain that there must be a gardener, he went and found even higher technology, things that would somehow detect energy that was in the area. And he set that up and they came back again. And yet there was no record of any kind of energy in the area. And finally, the, the man who didn't think that there was a gardener there necessarily said, see, there's nothing here. And the man, the first man said, all this proves is that the gardener can't be seen with the eye, can't be heard with the ear, and can't be felt with any senses. 
And the second man said, can't be seen, can't be heard, can't be detected. What's the difference between that and no gardener at all? And this argument often introduced to those freshmen, college, or maybe from skeptical friends, has led many who have grown up in the church to begin asking themselves, okay, what is it that I believe? Because I I can't see God, and I I don't hear him speaking, and and I can't touch him. And and all the sentimental things that we talk about where God's presence is here, and, and, and they begin questioning, and with the question, cracks, and with the cracks not properly dressed comes a crumbling because they are not necessarily believing that God has been disproven, but they come to the belief that maybe what I believe cannot be proven. In the middle of the 20th century, a philosopher by the name of John Wisdom, who I don't believe was a believer, but true to his surname, he made this declaration. Christ crucified and resurrected is a verifiable proposition upon which Christianity stands or sinks. Throughout this morning, we have been hearing the testimonies of those who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of the living Christ. The number of those who saw Jesus after he had died, after he was buried, and after he rose again is sufficient to meet any standard of historical veracity, any standard of any legitimate courtroom. Because he wasn't just seen by the women who uh, were first at the grave, not by the, only by the disciples to whom he met in an upper room. Uh, Paul writes later on that, uh, to the Corinthians that there was a time where Jesus was seen by more than 500 people at one time. And if you take that to a court, more than 500 people show up and say, yeah, I saw it, I saw it, I saw it. If you have this kind of written testimony throughout history, it proves the argument for anyone who is reasonable and open to the evidence. The resurrection of Christ that has been testified declares to us that Jesus is alive. And this is more than just information that will be helpful to you if you play the Bible version of Trivial Pursuit. It's a practical application that is beneficial for every one of us. Because as John Wisdom said, our faith sinks or swims on this verifiable proposition. Was there ever a man named Jesus who lived and who was crucified and then who rose again from the dead? And all evidence testifies that that is true. And more than it be a foundation for our faith, it is an active part in the way that we live. It's an active ingredient to enable us to live day to day in our lives in this world. Because one of the testimonies that we heard earlier today that Peter records for us, he declares this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Paul, what, what Peter is saying is that you and I who believe, you and I who are able to believe because of the resurrection, we don't just believe and have a foundation for our faith, but through that belief, we are born into a living hope because of that resurrection. Now, what is this living hope? I looked for all week for a pithy and profound um, expression of what a definition of living hope would be. And the best one that I found was this. A living hope is not a dead hope. I thought that was pretty profound. And what the writer went on to say is it's, it's not a dead hope. We all put our hope into something. The question is whether we put our hope into something that is alive and something that is powerful and something that is bearing fruit, which all living things do. Or are we putting our hope in something that is dead and powerless? And because Jesus rose from the dead, it's a living hope because Jesus is alive. And it's a living hope because you and I are alive. And because it's a living hope, it is powerful and it is bearing fruit and making change in the lives of those who believe. It flourishes. And it does so in any number of ways. I'm just going to touch on a couple of them here very briefly this morning. The first way that it flourishes, because it's a living hope, is that hope drives away fear, just like the dawn drives away the darkness. See, Peter, in this testimony, he goes on and he says, look, in this life, we're going to experience difficulties, hardships, trials of various kinds. We all taste them. We all experience them. Some of you are enduring them right now. But hope sees past that to a reality that is greater than our present circumstance and our past failures. And when we are focused on the resurrection and all that it has promised, it enables us to transcend our present circumstances and continue on. It is the hope that drives us. It is the hope that is driving out the fear and the anxiety, which is fear of the future. One author pointed out that First Peter was written for people like us. In fact, what he says is that the issues of Peter's day were a precursor to ours. There were political stressors and cultural pressures that abounded and that it wasn't easy to be a follower of Jesus. Another commentator says this, uh, the people were being abused by overbearing bosses, threatened by unbelieving spouses, and ridiculed by skeptical neighbors and associates. And on the horizon looms a much more violent form of persecution. Nevertheless, this living hope invaded their decaying world. And Jesus' resurrection was more compelling than their fear, their anxiety, or even a temptation to overthrow. And so when we focus on the resurrection and the promises that are fulfilled and the promises that are associated with it, it drives out fear and anxiety. It does so because it's focused on a 
an assured better future. That's what Peter is talking about in, in the verses that follow that. See, we are born into this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through. And so there, it is promised, it is safeguarded, it is guaranteed. The power of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection flourishes in us and enables us to focus on what God is doing in us, not just to the salvation that is ours, but the fact that we are told that God is at work within us and enables us to persevere through the fears, through the anxiety, through the trials, through the tribulations, toward that preferred, guaranteed future. And in the process of doing that, it inspires in every one of us amazement, awe, and adoration of God when we think of what he has done and the reason that Christ was crucified and resurrected on our behalf. In other words, as we stand in awe at the power of God, as we are amazed at God's love that sent Jesus to the cross, and then the power that rose him again, conquering death, fulfilling promises that were made immediately after Adam and Eve, our first parents, were expelled from the, from the, from the garden. We realize the power, the patience, and God is faithful, and we can rest in him. We stand in awe. We are amazed at the love that he has demonstrated for us, which leads us to adoration, which is an intimacy with God, which is the essence of worship. See, it's because of the resurrection that we have this hope that we can look forward. We, see, we look back, we see what God is doing, and in us flourishes this adoration, this love for God, because we see through this resurrection that God has loved us perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. As one writer wrote, to hope, have hope is to savor the appetizer of the feast that is guaranteed by redemption and by the promise of restoration. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians and he said this, I want to know the power of the resurrection. That is my desire this day and every day. It's, it's what I long for. It is the power of God that those who believe because of the resurrection are born into. It is the power of God that is alive and bears fruit as you believe. May that be our longing this day and every day. Let's pray. Father, as we come this day, we give thanks to you for the many testimonies, both past and present, of those who have experienced your grace that was secured because of the resurrection of our Christ. Bless us, Lord, with faith. And with that faith, let it be a foundation that is unshakable because it is a resurrection that is unchangeable. Be at work within us. Renew us. Make us like Christ, we pray. In the name of Christ, our Redeemer and King. Amen.